This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's October, the time that leaves change, the air turns crisp, and we start thinking about holidays that are just around the corner. This year, I've decided to do something a little different for October series. I usually do Halloween-themed episodes, but while I love Halloween and all that comes with it, I have something else that I love just as much, and that's rock music. So this time, I've decided to give you a few rock music-themed episodes. I haven't had a chance to do this since way back in Season 1, when I told you stories of the tragic endings of musical icons in the series The Day the Music Died. So I'm really excited to share more of these stories with you. As you probably know, there's no shortage of mayhem and craziness in the world of rock music, and I've found some really extraordinary stories I think you'll like. First up, I'll tell you about a free concert that took place at the tail end of the hippie peace and love movement of the 1960s. As that decade wound to a close, America's innocence and naivete went with it. The assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy, the Vietnam War, and the Manson family murders, all but ended the ideals of the peace and love generation and ushered in a new, pragmatic, and perhaps cynical view of the world. Then, the Woodstock Music Festival took place in a cow pasture in New York State, and youth of the counterculture movement found renewed hope. It was music, they believed, that would unite everyone together and heal the world. A free concert would take place in Northern California in December of 1969, featuring the Rolling Stones, who, at that time, were one of the biggest rock and roll bands on the planet. But this festival would end not with world peace, but in death, destruction, and absolute mayhem. This is the true story of the Altamont Music Festival, the Hells Angels, and the Rolling Stones. What was the last music concert you attended? Second question, how much did you pay for that ticket? I'd venture to guess it probably wasn't cheap. I won't even tell you how much I paid for a ticket to the last concert I attended. Tickets to almost any venue here in California are through the roof. And this one was for a concert at the brand new Chase Center and was ridiculously expensive. Definitely a major splurge. So you might be surprised to learn that at one time, there was a movement to make rock concerts free to all. The proponents of this idea were mostly concentrated in California and emerged from the hippie counterculture of San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district. These mostly teen and young adults protested government intervention in their lives, rejected materialism, and advocated for free food, housing, and medical programs for all. All of these ideas culminated in what came to be known as the Summer of Love in 1967. It was kicked off by a free festival called the Human Be-In, held in Golden Gate Park in January of that year. 30,000 people showed up to listen to Timothy Leary advocate for the use of psychedelic drugs, which a new California law had just banned, by famously telling the youth of America to turn on, tune in, and drop out. They also listened to beat poets Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and heard music performed by the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and Big Brother and the Holding Company, whose lead singer was Janis Joplin. Marijuana and LSD tablets were distributed liberally, and all of this was at no cost. A sea of long-haired youth dressed in beads, fringe vests, and tie-dyed tees spent a day celebrating freedom and love. It had been organized and planned for well in advance, and the day went off without a hitch. It cemented San Francisco as the center of the hippie counterculture movement. Other music festivals followed. Bands often played for free, and while the festivals weren't exactly free, they were usually low cost, a couple of bucks per ticket, with most of the proceeds going to charity. The Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Festival was held over two days in June on Mount Tamalpais in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Just days later, the biggest by far of these festivals was held over three days in Monterey located in California's Central Coast. The Monterey Pop Festival featured the first-ever American performances by the Jimi Hendrix Experience and The Who, and introduced a large audience to Janis Joplin and Otis Redding. Other performers who played at Monterey Pop 
were the Jefferson Airplane, the Mamas and the Papas, and the Grateful Dead. It was said that over 90,000 people attended the festival in total. Multiple-day rock festivals became attractive to bands seeking to make a name for themselves and reach a wider audience. Jimi Hendrix became a regular draw at these concerts, as well as The Doors, Led Zeppelin, The Grateful Dead, Santana, and Bob Dylan. Then, the big kahuna of all rock concerts was held. Billed as an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music, the concert that would become known as Woodstock was held over the weekend of August 15th through 18th in Bethel, New York, which was actually 43 miles southwest of Woodstock, New York. The concert, not intended to be free, drew in an audience of over 400,000 people, only about 180,000 of which paid the $18 for the entrance ticket. The rest of the attendees simply walked onto the cow pasture where the event was being held. The sheer number of people who arrived had not been planned for, and the organizers were overrun. While the concert was plagued by problems from traffic jams to torrential rain to inadequate facilities for the masses, the festival was deemed a hit and went down in the history books. Unforgettable performances by Jimi Hendrix, Santana, Credence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, and many more were recorded on audio and film. What promoters lost on ticket sales, they more than made up for with the distribution rights to the documentary film that was produced of the concert. Titled Woodstock, it was released in 1970. The film was produced for $600,000 and grossed more than $50 million in ticket sales in the U.S. alone. Music promoters in other countries also saw the attraction of large music festivals to promote their talent. In the fall of 1969, a free concert was held in London's Hyde Park, featuring the Rolling Stones in front of an audience of over 250,000 fans. The Stones, a British rock band who'd been playing together since the early 1960s, had a string of hits on the UK and the US charts, but were facing some challenges by the late 1960s. By 1967, American audiences were more interested in psychedelic rock bands like Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, and Pink Floyd. Even the Beatles had evolved with their 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But the Rolling Stones' own foray into psychedelic rock wasn't as well received. Also released in 1967, their album titled Their Satanic Majesty's Request was largely panned by critics as derivative of Sgt. Pepper. Also during this time, Mick Jagger, the band's lead singer, and guitarists Keith Richards and Brian Jones were all dealing with legal issues due to drug raids on their residences in 1967. The Stones' next album, Beggar's Banquet, was a throwback to their bluesy rock and roll roots and reached number three in the UK charts and number five in the US. Several songs on the album would become iconic for the band, including Jumpin' Jack Flash and Sympathy for the Devil. At the same time, simply put, founding member and guitarist Brian Jones had become a detriment to the band. His drug addiction had led to his declining health to such an extent that his contribution to the band's last album had been minimal. In July of 1969, Jones was fired from the band. A few days later, he was found drowned in his own swimming pool. The Hyde Park show was the first that featured the Stones' new guitarist, Mick Taylor, and was dedicated to Brian Jones. Besides all the other problems that plagued the Rolling Stones in 1969, they were also low on funds. Needing an infusion of cash, Mick Jagger met with Austrian banker Prince Rupert Lowenstein. Prince Rupert, after going over the band's books, realized that they were broke. They had signed contracts with Decca Records and made over $17 million in three years, but their contract only entitled the band to a small portion, which was long gone. The Stones had not toured in over three years, which, their new banker explained, was the best way to raise the cash they so desperately needed. Their first priority was to plan a U.S. tour to promote their new album, Let It Bleed, set to release at the end of the year. Jagger placed a call to Chip Monk, the stage manager in charge of the Woodstock Music Festival. Who would know the U.S. music tour scene better, he thought. He also spoke with Sam Cutler, who'd been the stage manager for the Hyde Park concert, their biggest to date. Sam Cutler, at just 26 years old, 
had only been working in the music scene for two years. He'd been hanging out with local bands in London and fell into managing an unknown rock group before being introduced to a drummer, who was the brother of a girl Cutler was dating. The drummer, it turns out, was Nick Mason of Pink Floyd. He then met Pink Floyd's managers, who recommended him as a gopher at Black Hill Enterprises, a production company that would later run the Hyde Park show. By the time Cutler met the Stones, he was working as a stage manager. Now he was being hired by Mick Jagger, one of the biggest rock stars in one of the world's most famous rock bands, to be the tour manager of their upcoming U.S. tour. It was a dream job, he thought. Just weeks later, another young band manager, Rock Scully, would meet with Cutler in London. Scully, the 24-year-old manager of the Grateful Dead, had been contacted by Black Hill Enterprises to promote other music festivals to be held in the U.S. Cutler was interested in pairing the Rolling Stones with some of the hottest San Francisco bands, including the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, in a free concert to be held at the end of the Stones' U.S. tour. Cutler thought this would provide the band with an opportunity to play in front of a large audience and bring in new fans from the psychedelic music scene. Scully saw it as an opportunity to show the Brits how to properly pull off a large all-day music festival. It seemed like a win-win. What could go wrong? The Rolling Stones' U.S. tour kicked off on November 7, 1969, in Fort Collins, Colorado. They were slated to play 15 cities for a total of 23 shows. The very last show would be a free concert, where they were billed along with the Grateful Dead and other bands to be named later. The date was set for December 6, 1969. Things had changed since the last time the Stones toured the States three years earlier. First of all, more attention was paid to staging, especially the audio equipment used at live shows. The last time they performed in the U.S. had been on the heels of Beatlemania. The Beatles had taken America by storm in 1966, and the Stones, as another British rock group, had found their concerts filled with teen girls who screamed during the entire 25-minute sets they were required to perform. Since the band could hardly be heard over the shrieks, not much effort had been put into ensuring good audio quality. Now they would be performing before a more mature audience of music lovers who really wanted to hear the musicians. Concerts were a time for hippies to groove or dance in a free and uninhibited way. To get this full experience, they had to hear the music clearly. The Let It Bleed tour would be the first time the Stones traveled with their own audio equipment and sound engineers. They'd been told it was important to U.S. audiences and were excited for their fans to really experience the band live. The second big change on the concert scene was that LSD had become prevalent, especially on the West Coast. Incidentally, the person responsible for improving the audio quality of Grateful Dead concerts was also responsible for the proliferation of LSD. Augustus Owsley Stanley III, known as Bear, was trained in electronics while in the Air Force and became the Grateful Dead's audio expert. He is credited as being the first engineer to provide stereo sound in a live venue. One of his inventions was the use of stage monitors that allowed the musicians to hear themselves while playing, something used routinely today. Before anyone else, Bear figured out the usefulness of turning smaller separate speakers towards the stage. Bear was naturally curious and a resourceful guy. He studied scientific journals in the UC Berkeley Library until he was able to figure out the formula for lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD. He coined the operation Bear Laboratories and set about making the first million doses of LSD in history. The Grateful Dead band members were, of course, direct beneficiaries of this historic achievement. LSD had become an integral element of the hippie counterculture, especially as it related to the enjoyment of the new psychedelic rock. It was the experience of being under the influence of the hallucinogenic drug combined with rock music, that became synonymous with rock concerts of the 1960s. Not only did the Grateful Dead band members get to partake of his product, but Bear's proceeds from the drug trade allowed him to invest in the band when it was first formed. While the Stones' purpose in launching a U.S. tour was to promote their new album, they were also very motivated by the money the tour would provide. Bands were excited upon hearing that the band was planning a free concert, but the Stones' motivation for doing so wasn't entirely altruistic. 
The Monterey Pop Festival had been shot on film to be aired on television. The American Broadcasting Company put up a $200,000 advance for the rights to broadcast it on their station. However, after the head of ABC saw the completed footage, he deemed it obscene and never aired it. It was then purchased to be distributed in theaters. Upon its release in December of 1968, it made stars of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and turned a profit at the box office. A documentary of the Woodstock Music Festival that was in production at the time was expected to break box office records. The Rolling Stones, while not expecting to receive a paycheck for playing the free concert, hoped to cut a deal for the film rights. While the Stones continued on the Let It Bleed tour through November, plans were being made for the free concert to be held in early December. The band largely left others in charge of organizing this event. Rock Scully was to connect Sam Cutler with the Grateful Dead, who would use their resources to help organize the concert. Scully said he could provide contacts to help Cutler find a venue, secure permits, hire staff, and rent the needed equipment. One of the people Scully brought in as a consultant was Emmett Grogan. Grogan had been involved in the Human Bee In Festival in 1967. He knew the intricacies of organizing an open-air concert for over 100,000 people. He advised Scully to plan for logistics, like who would provide food and water, medical care, and transportation. Neither Scully nor Jagger seemed very concerned and merely said all the details would be worked out later. Scully and Grogan laid out plans for the Rolling Stones to be billed alongside the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. They wanted the concert held in Golden Gate Park, the same site as the Human Bee-In. Grogan also proposed that the Hells Angel Motorcycle Club would escort the band to the venue and work as security during the concert. The Hells Angels, an outlaw motorcycle gang, had long been associated with the Grateful Dead and the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. The Hells Angels had chapters in various locations, with San Francisco being one of the largest and most active. The Angels were involved in the drug trade and other illegal activities, but got along with the counterculture hippies for the most part. They were tight with Jerry Garcia, the lead singer of the Grateful Dead, and its other members, and many of the members hung out quite a bit with the band. They had attended a number of the music festivals, arriving on their Harleys and wearing their leather jackets and vests, with Hells Angels and their chapter affiliation emblazoned on the back. They'd even served as unofficial security at the Bee-In and Monterey Pop Festivals. Cutler told Keith Richards and Mick Jagger that the Angels were righteous dudes who carried themselves with honor and dignity. It all seemed pretty cool to the Stones, especially since Mick Jagger had only one condition regarding the free concert. No cops. He didn't want police officers present, but instead would bring along some of the band's own security people. Albert Funches was a six-and-a-half-foot-tall ex-Vietnam veteran who signed on to work as the band's personal security guard after they discovered him running security for Los Angeles concert promoters. John James had inserted himself on the Stones' tour by claiming he was affiliated with Chrysler Motors and offered a fleet of automobiles for the band's use. He became a permanent fixture on the tour although no one really knew him, but he also brought along a number of off-duty NYPD narcotic cops to provide extra security. While James threw around his business cards with the company name listed as Young American Enterprises, he was not paid by the band. The most anticipated show of the Stones' tour was Two Nights in New York playing Madison Square Garden. The opening acts would be Ike and Tina Turner, B.B. King, and Terry Reed. Two days before the concert in New York, Mick Jagger met with documentary filmmakers Albert and David Mazels. The Mazels brothers had filmed the Beatles during their first U.S. tour in 1964, and Albert Mazels had worked as a cinematographer on the Monterey Pop film, among many other projects. The band offered the brothers the job of documenting their concert tour. The Maisels had never seen the Stones perform and, in fact, barely knew who they were. Before giving them their answer, Albert and David Maisels traveled to Baltimore the next day to watch the Stones perform. Afterwards, they decided that these young men were perhaps the best rock band they had ever seen and agreed to film the documentary. They signed a contract and were paid $14,000 up front. However, Al Maisels believed that they were only being hired to film the Madison Square Garden shows and didn't know they were also expected to film the free concert in California. 
Plans continued to be put in place as the date for the free concert drew near. Sam Cutler met with Rock Scully and members of the Grateful Dead at the band's headquarters in Novato. He would also be introduced to Bob Roberts, the president of the Hells Angels San Francisco chapter, and several other members to talk about plans for the Angels to work security at the free concert. Bob Roberts told Cutler, we ain't no cops. But Cutler explained that Mick Jagger had his own security team, and the Angels were simply needed as backup, keeping people from getting backstage, giving directions, and generally helping out where needed. He said they would be able to enjoy the concert as well, and could bring their bikes inside and park them near the generators. The Angels didn't ask for any money to show up, but said they wouldn't mind being provided some beer. Cutler said he would cover $500 to be spent on beer, and the agreement was made. A park permit was requested by Burt Kangason, who worked for the Grateful Dead. He had experience dealing with San Francisco park commissioners in the past. He'd spoken directly with the commissioners, asking for the use of the polo fields in Golden Gate Park. They had agreed to put the matter up for discussion at the board meeting the following morning. Kangason was sure the permit would be approved. But that afternoon, Rock Scully called and told Kangason to cancel the meeting. Sam Cutler had called to say the Stones were going to work directly with the mayor on the matter. Kangason knew this was a bad idea. Mayor Joe Alioto had taken a hard stance against the hippies he felt were creating problems for the city of San Francisco. Kangason explained this to Scully, but Scully said the Stones were already taking care of it. Instead of the free concert being a Grateful Dead event, with the Rolling Stones as special guest, the way it had been planned, it now appeared that the Stones were in charge and rejecting the experience and connections the locals could provide. Kangason predicted a bad outcome. As soon as the mayor's office heard that a foreign rock band wanted to take over Golden Gate Park, one of the most serene and beautiful parts of the city, for one of the biggest anticipated free rock concerts ever held, they quickly shut them down. No permits would be issued to the Rolling Stones in San Francisco. On Friday, November 28th, the band held a press conference in New York, where Jagger was asked about the rumors of a free concert. He said it was true and would take place on December 6th. The location is not Golden Gate Park, he told reporters, but somewhere adjacent, which is a bit larger. But I won't know where until 7.30 this evening, but it's definitely on. Four days before the concert was to take place, a venue still wasn't secured. Finally, Craig Murray, the owner of the Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma, offered the use of the site. Murray wouldn't charge a rental fee, but the band would be responsible to secure the correct permits, provide liability insurance, and cover all costs needed to get the site ready for the concert. It all sounded like a plan until Murray added the following condition. All profits from any audio or film recording made at Sears Point were to be donated to a Vietnamese orphans fund. Still, with so little time left, workers began arriving to set up scaffolding for the speakers and lights and erecting the stage. Then another monkey wrench was thrown into the works. It so happened that Sears Point Raceway was owned by Filmways, a company that produced television shows like Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies. When they learned that the Rolling Stones were planning to film the concert for commercial release, they demanded a $100,000 fee and distribution rights. Jagger refused to give up any profits from the film or pay the fee. The deal to use the raceway as the venue was torpedoed. When reporters asked Jagger if the concert was called off, he replied, we'll play in the streets if we have to. It was now Thursday morning and the concert was set for Saturday. At the 11th hour, Dick Carter, owner of the Altamont Speedway in Tracy, California, a site approximately an hour due east of San Francisco, called to offer his property as a concert venue. The Altamont Speedway was located on a flat portion of land on a windswept portion of San Joaquin County. It could only be reached by way of a remote four-lane highway. Carter had purchased the asphalt racetrack just a few years earlier and was in debt. He offered his property free of charge. He was banking on the publicity drawing more visitors to the racetrack to help keep the business from going under. The site wasn't pretty, but they had little choice now. There was literally one night to get the site ready for the concert before the crowds began arriving. The stage and scaffolding would have to be erected in less than 36 hours. There were also no amenities at the racetrack, no water, concessions, or even enough bathroom facilities for the large numbers expected to attend. There wasn't time to warn the police or emergency services 
about the coming hordes. The area was remote, and only two police cruisers were routinely assigned to patrol that section of the county. By Friday evening, cars began arriving with concertgoers. Before the sun came up on Saturday, the parking lot provided by the Speedway was full. People began parking anywhere they could find space. When all areas near the Speedway were filled, drivers began leaving their cars on the side of the road leading up to the venue. Cars were even left parked on the sides of the freeway itself, with people walking miles to reach the gates. Even if there had been officers available, they also would have been stuck in the jam of cars heading to Altamont. 50,000 people had arrived by midnight on Friday. By the next morning, it was well over 200,000, and more kept coming. In total, it was estimated that over 300,000 people would travel to Altamont for the free concert. The size of the crowd sitting on the ground on blankets, including men, women, children, and dogs, was an amazing sight to behold. Crews worked through the night, illuminated by whatever light could be rigged up. The sound system had to be put into place. Tall scaffolds would hold the speakers and lights, some 40 feet high. These would end up becoming gigantic adult jungle gyms that concertgoers would climb to get a better view of the stage. It was a serious danger, and many announcements would be made throughout the day, asking people to climb down from the scaffolds. The material to build the lighting towers and the stage had been ordered with the Sears Point venue in mind. There, the stage was to be placed on a natural rise, several feet higher than the crowd below. However, the Altamont Speedway was flat. The stage then was only a couple of feet off the ground, and there was no time or material available to build it any taller. The musicians would be only four feet above the audience at Altamont. In comparison, at Woodstock, the stage was positioned 15 feet above the crowd. The final lineup for the concert was announced. Santana would open the concert in the morning, followed by Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the Grateful Dead, and then the Rolling Stones would end the evening, making their entrance after sunset. As the sun came up on Saturday, the first big wave of people who had arrived overnight and waited for the gate to be opened decided not to wait any longer. En masse, they tore down the cyclone fence and rushed the stage, pushing to be the closest to the front. There were no real barriers to the stage or backstage area. Thousands of people continued to arrive all morning. By 10 a.m., the California Highway Patrol reported the backup in both directions was over 10 miles long on the freeway. The first problems at Altamont occurred with the arrival of the first attendees. LSD was passed around freely, and some people began experiencing bad trips. While hallucinogens were considered a groovy high, there was also a possibility that the hallucinations a person on the drug experienced could be terrifying. Another danger was mixing speed with LSD, or even ingesting speed-laced LSD, which led to overstimulation. A common symptom of this drug combo was a person compulsively stripping off all their clothes. Hundreds of nude men and women would wander around the speedway throughout the day, some attempting to climb onto the stage or ascending the lighting towers. Even worse, those who mixed acid with amphetamines exhibited increased aggressiveness, paranoia, and could act out violently. The combination of alcohol and LSD also led to an increase in aggression and violence. Right away, as people began arriving, hundreds and then thousands of people began to experience bad trips. Bad acid was floating around the speedway, with some people later reporting they were purposely dosed by strangers, who gave them bottles of what they thought only contained orange juice. Luckily, even though medical personnel had not been enlisted to work the concert, volunteer doctors and nurses showed up and set up medical tents provided by the Red Cross. The volunteers had very few supplies beyond basic first aid kits and no medications, except a small ration of Thorazine that would be used as a tranquilizer for the most extreme cases of violent or out-of-control patients. Volunteers who had experienced talking acid victims down from a bad high would be in demand all day. Before the first band of the day even began, an 18-year-old named Leonard Kryzik, most likely high, climbed a cyclone fence that separated the Speedway property from an aqueduct. Signs were posted warning people away from the area. A state police officer who was positioned on the other side of the canal saw the young man remove his shirt 
and slide down feet first into the aqueduct. He bobbed in the water for a few seconds before the powerful current pulled him under. His body was found a couple of hours later and two miles down the canal. Hell's Angels began arriving in the morning, but most, rather than helping to provide security or volunteering to transport the sick or injured, began to party. Many drove their bikes right up beside the stage and then sat on the edge of it drinking gallon jugs of cheap wine and dropping acid. Angels from the San Francisco and Oakland chapters arrived first, followed by a large contingency from the San Jose chapter. The San Jose chapter was not as established as San Francisco and Oakland. Members were younger and felt they had more to prove. Wanting to add to their street cred, they tended to behave like hotheads and were often itching for a fight. Many of these bikers positioned themselves at the end of the stage facing the crowd. The crowd continued to push forward and soon were surrounding the Angels' motorcycles. This would not do. An Angels' bike is his life, and woe to anyone who disrespects it or causes any harm to come to it. The first band to hit the stage was Santana. Carlos Santana, born in Mexico and raised in San Francisco's Mission District, had exploded on the psychedelic music scene when he took the stage at Woodstock five months earlier. The band was supposed to begin playing at 1 p.m., but they arrived early, and Sam Cutler, hoping to get the crowd who'd been wandering on stage in into the backstage area to settle down, decided to bring Santana up early. They began their set a little before noon. The sight of the band on stage being crowded out not only by audience members, but numerous burly Hells Angels, was like nothing ever seen before. The band was barely visible for all the bodies surrounding them as they tried to play their instruments for an audience of over a quarter million people now. But that wouldn't be the most bizarre thing to occur during Santana's set. All of a sudden, a large overweight man pushed to the front of the stage. He was completely nude and having a wonderful time dancing exuberantly. As he did so, he began slamming into people who pushed him away. At some point, he made contact with one of the Hell's Angels. Before anyone knew what was happening, a group of angels began beating the man with fists and kicking him with their boots. Burl Kangason, who worked for the Grateful Dead, was standing near the stage and saw the angels beating the naked man. He pleaded with them to stop, and surprisingly, they did. However, as the naked man walked off, he walked past one of the bikers and punched him full in the face before running away into the crowd. The angels now turned on Kangason. They pulled out sawed-off pool cues and began pummeling him with them. Kangason fell to the ground, but they continued to beat him as people began screaming. They finally backed off and returned to their positions near the stage. Cutler called for a doctor, and Kangason was taken backstage. His head and face was a bloody mess. It took 60 stitches to close all his wounds. He was given pain pills, and his head was bandaged. Santana continued with the rest of their set, playing for 45 minutes, during which time the angels paced back and forth on the small stage, periodically landing their pool cues on audience members. When someone became too boisterous or climbed too close to the stage, an angel would land a boot on them or fling them roughly back into the crowd. During the last song, a man ran across the stage in front of the band. Before he could make it to the other side and back into the crowd, the angels grabbed him, threw him down, and began stomping on him on the stage directly in front of the band. The band left the stage in disgust. The Maisels brothers captured it all on the three cameras they had running throughout the concert. Santana would not allow the footage of their set to be used in the film. The Airplane, a San Francisco band, was one of the most popular acts at that time and had played several music festivals. Lead singer Grace Slick was backed up by Marty Ballin on vocals. They made their way onto the stage where several audience members and angels were still crowded around their instruments and microphones. Sam Cutler kept calling for everyone but the band to leave the stage, but no one was listening. An angel called Animal was prominent on the stage, dressed in his Hell's Angels vest or colors and wearing a coyote pelt on his head. As the band began to play, the angels began throwing audience members off the stage, and Animal and another bigger angel named Sweet William began to beat on one young man just in front of the microphone stand. Grace Slick moved back and began to repeat, easy, easy, 
as people in the audience screamed and flashed peace signs to try and counteract the violence taking place in front of them. Marty Bellin started yelling at Animal, who was beating on another fan. Animal approached Bellin and punched him full in the face. Bellin dropped like a lead weight onto the stage. He soon recovered, jumping up before returning to the edge of the stage to yell again at the angels beating fans in the audience. Bellin jumped into the crowd to try and stop the fight. Guitarist Paul Kantner took the mic and announced to the crowd, Hey man, I'd like to mention that the Hells Angels just smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. Sweet William now picked up a mic as well and asked Kantner if he was talking to him. Kantner answered back that he was talking to the person who hit the singer. You're talking to my people, Sweet William challenged him. Grace Slick tried to calm the situation, saying, No hassles with anybody in particular. You've got to keep your bodies off each other unless you intend love. Marty Bellin was pulled back onto the stage. He was unconscious. Rhodes half-carried, half-dragged him to an equipment truck set up behind the stage. A few minutes later, Bellin regained consciousness, but was still woozy when Animal came in to apologize. He told Bellin he was sorry, but added, You just can't say fuck you to an angel. Bellin, still angry, answered, Oh yeah? Fuck you. Animal hauled off and punched Bellin in the face, knocking him out once more. The biggest, meanest guy on the dead's crew, Rex Jackson, went after Animal and was also knocked out. The band and everyone on the crew now felt completely helpless to stop whatever mayhem the angels wanted to dish out. The violence the angels began indiscriminately meeting out was met with more violence as drunk, high, or foolish, or perhaps all three, concert attendees pushed their way to the front for the sole purpose of fighting the angels. The injured continued to be carried backstage to be patched up and sent on their way if possible. The Rolling Stones boarded a helicopter bound for Altamont that afternoon and arrived as the Flying Burrito Brothers were playing their set. The Burrito Brothers' music was in the vein of country rock and more relaxed. The crowd sat down and stopped pushing up towards the stage. Perhaps partially as a result of this, the angels also calmed down and the band was able to play with minimal interruptions. Mick Jagger, having arrived at Altamont, exited the helicopter and a moment later was assaulted by a concert goer, most likely high on some substance or another. Screaming, I hate you, he hauled off and punched Jagger in the face. Some members of John James's security team wrestled the young man to the ground, but Jagger called out to them not to hurt him. He and the rest of the band went inside the trailer that served as their dressing room. They would remain there until it was time to take the stage. The Grateful Dead arrived soon afterwards and were filled in on all the events of the day. They saw Bert Kangason's bandaged head and bruised face, their head of security Rex Jackson sporting a black eye, and heard about the Jefferson Airplane's lead singer getting beat up by the Angels. They were stunned. Rock Scully saw the situation for what it was now, an all-out shit show, and urged the dead not to play. They debated it for a while, but after seeing that even Terry the Tramp, a good friend who was also a San Francisco Hells Angels member, told them that he was concerned, they decided not to play. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were slated to play next and arrived in a car from the Tracy Airport. They heard all about the violence and that the dead had bailed out on the concert, but as traffic had delayed them and they had arrived just in time for their scheduled slot, they took the stage. The period of calm of the previous band set didn't last. As soon as CSNY began to play and the crowd became more animated, the angels responded by taking out their pool cues once again. The bikers were high on speed and LSD, which they had been washing down liberally with jugs of cheap wine. The result was that the members, already violent in nature, grew increasingly aggressive. Their violent response to the crowd was mostly unprovoked and immediate. Two or three angels at a time would begin pounding on young men, pushing and throwing women away from the stage roughly, and swinging their pool cues down on anyone within striking distance. The band was horrified, and David Crosby pleaded with them, please stop hurting each other. It seemed no one wanted to call the angels out directly after what happened to Marty Ballin. Grace Slick, who'd seen the angels beat people directly on the stage in front of her, had admonished, both sides are fucking up temporarily. Let's not keep fucking up. Now some of the angels, high and drunk, began to enjoy provoking the crowd and even the musicians. 
when Stephen Stills stepped up to take the mic to sing, one of the angels sitting on the edge of the stage took out a sharpened motorcycle spoke and stabbed him in the leg. Stills, afraid to set the biker off further, ignored him, even as he continued to be stabbed every time he stepped forward. By the time the song ended, the singer had blood running down his leg. Someone was able to slip the spoke away from the bully while he was distracted, and Stills continued the set unbothered. The band played a shortened set to get out of Altamont as quickly as possible. After CSNY left the stage, and with the dead having boogied out of Altamont as well, the Stones were the only band left to play. However, not knowing that the lineup times had changed, Bill Wyman, the Stones' bassist, had not yet arrived. Even so, the band wanted to wait until the sunset before they went on stage. They always did so in order to make the most dramatic appearance. They planned to wait until dark this time as well. Unfortunately, that left two hours in between the last band and the time the Stones would be announced. Two hours provided a lot of time for mischief and mayhem to occur when the crowd became restless. Without food, water, or adequate bathroom facilities, restlessness was a given. A small group of people, including a young woman who was five months pregnant, sat on a patch of ground far away from the stage to enjoy a small picnic with friends. One restless idiot picked that time to launch a full can of beer high into the air. It landed on the head of the 22-year-old pregnant woman who was named Denise Kaufman and knocked her unconscious. She came too, but was dizzy and her vision was blurred. Her husband led her to the medical tent where a doctor examined her and realized she was gravely injured. He could feel that her skull just behind her ear had cracked from the impact of the beer can. She was first transported to a hospital in Livermore, the next town over, but emergency personnel there determined that she needed to see a brain surgeon right away and was sent by ambulance to a hospital in San Francisco. There, she underwent surgery to remove the shattered pieces of her skull from her brain. She would eventually recover, but went through excruciating pain and it took some time for her vision to return. Back at Altamont, the crowd was still waiting out the long break before the Stones took the stage. During this time, the Angels Oakland chapter president, Sonny Barger, arrived. At about 5 p.m., he rode up along with about a dozen other members. They drove their Harleys through the crowd, who quickly began clearing a path when they realized the bikers were riding through whether they got out of the way or not. Barger told his members to park their bikes parallel to the stage, clearing out a space of about 40 yards from the stage to the crowd. This kept some of the crowd back, but others simply approached from the sides and even the back of the stage. Before long, the stage itself was crowded with people once again. Barger was taken into the tent backstage where the Stones were now tuning their instruments. He met the band and wasn't impressed with the lead singer, Mick Jagger. He thought he was dismissive and didn't show the Angels proper respect. It made him angry. He left the tent and sat on the edge of the stage near Sweet William. After a few minutes, he sent William in to tell the band to get their asses on the stage. The natives were getting restless, and it would be their fault if his people had to quash this nonsense. William told Jagger to move his ass already to which Jagger responded that the band was preparing and would go on when they were good and ready. William growled at him, I'm telling you, people are going to die out there. Get out there. You've been told. He left the tent. Sam Cutler was trying to clear the stage so the stones could begin, but no one was listening. Sonny Barger grabbed a microphone and said, All right, everybody, get off the stage, including Hell's Angels. People began to move. It was clear who was really in charge now. The Angels acted as bodyguards and walked the band to the stage. They never would have made it without getting crushed by the crowd without the biker's presence, and they knew it. The stage had been lit from behind with powerful spotlights. It clearly illuminated the massive crowd. The Mazels had been filming all day and now set up their cameras to capture the stones and the audience members closest to the stage. One man who stood out from the rest was a good-looking African-American kid wearing a lime green suit with a black ruffled shirt and a black hat sitting atop his large afro at a jaunty angle. His name was Meredith Hunter.
Meredith Hunter, called Murdoch by his family and friends, lived in West Berkeley with his sister Dixie, who was 10 years his senior. The Hunter kids had a tough upbringing. Murdoch's father, who he'd been named after, was a Native American who left Murdoch's mother when he was just an infant. His mother suffered from schizophrenia and was later abused by her live-in boyfriend and forced into prostitution. Dixie had raised her siblings when their mother could not. An older aunt who lived nearby looked in on the kids to make sure they had food and basic necessities. By the time he was 11 years old, Murdoch, mostly left to his own devices, found himself in and out of juvenile hall. The first time, he was charged with being an out-of-control youth and spent five months locked up. At 13, he was picked up for burglary and was sentenced to serve nine months. He continued to be locked up on burglary charges and had just been released from his last stint the previous May. Then he met Patty. Patty Braidhoff was a 17-year-old high school senior who attended Berkeley High. She was the middle child of four and lived with her mother and her father in a small house in Berkeley. Her grandparents lived next door. She was blonde and petite, but not particularly outgoing or self-confident. When she met Murdoch at a party, she was flattered that such a beautiful boy had picked her to talk to. They had been going together for several months, and Murdoch was excited to take his new girl to the Rolling Stones concert. Murdoch Hunter was back living with his sister Dixie and had been helping her with his younger nieces and nephews. Her husband had recently been killed in a freak accident. He was electrocuted inside his truck when a power line fell on top of it. Murdoch and Patty had arrived at Altamont around 2 p.m. with another couple, who they quickly lost track of. Murdoch wanted to secure a position near the front of the stage, but the large crowd scared Patty. She was being lifted off her feet by the crush of so many bodies so close together. She also didn't like the look of the Hell's Angels. When Murdoch took her hand and led her to the front next to him, she thought the bikers were giving them dirty looks. She was used to this, being in a mixed-race relationship, but she didn't trust the look of the angels and had seen them be rough with audience members. Murdoch, however, didn't pay them any mind. Patty left her boyfriend up front for a while during the afternoon while she took a break. Around 5.30, he went to retrieve her. The Stones were getting ready to take the stage, and he didn't want her to miss it. He was able to maneuver both of them through the crowd to the front of the stage, just as the band was announced, and they launched into the first song, Jumping Jack Flash. When the Angels parked their bikes in front of the stage, it seemed like a good idea to them at the time. They believed no one would dare mess with their Harleys, but they underestimated the crowd's excitement at seeing the Rolling Stones. People began to push toward the stage again, swarming over the bikes and knocking them to the ground. That was bad enough, but then one guy kneeled on the seat of one of the bikes to get a better view of the stage. Smoke started coming from the bike, the pressure of the guy's body causing a short in the wiring. Barger saw this and ran into the crowd and towards the guy on the bike. The other angels didn't yet know what was happening, but they followed their leader, sensing trouble. As the bikers charged through the crowd, people began to scream and try to scramble away. The pool cues were at again, whipping anyone in their path. More angels ran towards the edge of the stage, looking into the audience to see where Barger and the others had gone. They were standing in front of the band. The band had begun to play Sympathy for the Devil before Barger took off into the crowd. Jagger now stopped singing, but Keith Richards kept playing until Jagger told him to stop the music so he could try and calm the crowd. Sisters and brothers, he said into the mic, come on now, just cool out. Will you cool out, everybody? He then asked if anyone in the audience was hurt. Then he announced, Okay, I think we're cool. We can go. In an attempt to cut the tension, Jagger joked, We always have something very funny happen when we start that number. Jagger launched into the song again, and minutes later was dancing during the instrumental portion when he looked over to his left and saw the angels beating on another fan. He froze in place. Not knowing what to do, he started singing again, ad-libbing the words, Everybody got to cool on down, cool on down. When the song ended, screams could be heard coming from the audience. Keith Richards had had enough. He had angry words with Sam Cutler about the violence taking place on and off the stage with the Hells Angels causing the majority of the problems. Richards then pointed to one of the angels in the crowd and yelled into the microphone, Look at that guy there. If he doesn't stop it, man... Listen, either those cats cool it, man, or we don't play. Suddenly, another angel grabbed a second microphone. While crossing the stage, he spoke into it, 
his voice strong and ringing out into the crowd. Hey, if you don't cool it, you ain't gonna hear no music. Now y'all wanna go home or what? The band and the audience were being controlled by the Hells Angels. It was obvious that the animals were in charge of this zoo. The stones stood back on the stage while angels pounded hippies directly in front of them, and there was not a thing they could do about it. The situation was completely out of control. They decided to launch into a melodic blues number, and it worked for a bit. People began to sit, and there wasn't such a crush towards the stage. The angels had less people to beat on, and things began to die down. At the end of the song, Mick Jagger called for people to remain relaxed. Now, boys and girls, are you sitting comfortably? He asked. The band began to play the first bars of Under My Thumb. Just as Jagger took the microphone, another fight began directly in front of the stage. Sounding stunned and tired, Jagger spoke to the audience once again. Every time we go into a number, something happens. I don't know what's going on. It's just a scuffle. This could be the most beautiful evening. Don't let's fuck it up, man. Come on, let's get it together. Then he spoke to the people far away in the crowd. I can't see you on the hillside, he said, looking out into the darkness. You're probably very cool. Down here, we're not so cool. We've got a lot of hassles. People kept trying to climb on top of and over the speaker boxes onto the stage, and the angels kept yanking at them and pushing them off. Murdoch Hunter had already tried to climb up once and had been pushed back. As the band began to play Under My Thumb for the second time, Patty saw her boyfriend move towards the stage again. Unknown to her, Murdoch had taken some speed and was now shouting out to others to get down from the speakers. As he moved forward, one of the angels to his right grabbed at him, yanking him by his ear and hair. He shook Murdoch's head back and forth and laughed. Murdoch looked at the man and said nothing, but his face was full of anger. The angel balled up his fist and punched the boy full in the face, dropping Murdoch backwards into the crowd. Even so, the angel jumped after him as the boy turned and began to run back through the audience. Now four or five more angels began to pound on him. He still ran, stumbling towards the scaffold. Patty, next to him, tried to help him stay upright. Desperate to escape, Murdoch reached around to his waistband. He was armed. He had brought a long-barreled twenty-two automatic weapon and hidden it under his coat. Scrambling to his feet, he pulled out his weapon. Before he could even draw it up level, another angel behind him ran up to Murdoch, raising his arm high over his head as he flew at him. The entire scene was caught on one of the Maisel's cameras. The shorter, dark-haired angel, later identified as 22-year-old Alan Passaro from the San Jose chapter, had a large knife in his right hand and brought the blade down with great force behind Murdoch's right ear. With his left hand, Passaro grabbed onto Murdoch's left arm that held the gun. Murdoch spun away and tried to run towards the left of the stage and through the crowd, who now parted to move away from the fight. Passaro, followed by more angels, can be seen on camera bringing the blade down twice into Murdoch's back while holding on to him. They disappear into the darkness as more bikers follow close behind. As Murdoch fell to the ground, another angel pulled the gun out of his hand. Mortally wounded, Murdoch tried to get up, but only managed a couple of steps before falling to his knees. Another angel grabbed him and kicked him in the head until he fell face down into the dirt. Still, he was able to turn over and face the angel looming over him. The last words he spoke were, I wasn't going to shoot you. Then why did you have a gun? The angel roared back at him before grabbing a garbage can and smashing him over the head. He and several other angels now began kicking and stomping on Murdoch. Patty behind them screamed and cried, yelling, Don't hurt him! When the boy stopped moving, the angel that had started the ruckus by punching Murdoch in the face stood on his head before walking away. The band, only aware that another fight was taking place to the left of the stage, played on. A couple of men who had been standing near Murdoch when the fight first broke out tried to reach him after the angels finished beating him, but the bikers blocked them. Don't touch him, he's gonna die anyway, one of the angels said to witness Paul Cox. When he walked away, Cox grabbed Murdoch's arms while someone else grabbed his legs. The fastest way to get him to help was through the stage. They thought if they could get him to the tent backstage, they could find help. They raised Murdoch's body to the top of the stage, where it landed in front of Keith Richards, who stared in shock. A couple of the angels positioned on the stage tried to kick Murdoch's body off of it, but Dr. Robert Hyatt, 
who'd heard a call for a doctor to come to the stage, arrived just in time. The angels pushed the boy's body into Hyatt's arms, who carried him around the scaffold and to the backstage area, where a stretcher met him. Murdoch still possessed a weak pulse, but the doctor knew he wouldn't live long if they couldn't get him immediate help. They tried to get him to a helicopter, but the pilot refused to fly them out, saying it was for the Rolling Stones' use only. They had to call for an ambulance, but Murdoch died waiting for it to arrive. His face had been beaten to a pulp, and he could only breathe through his mouth. He had a large gash in his head above his right ear from the first knife blow. He had four other stab wounds to his back and side. The wounds were deep and punctured vital organs. The band was still dazed from seeing Murdoch's bloody body as he was lifted onto the stage. They weren't sure what to do. They worried if they stopped playing, chaos would ensue and more lives would be in danger. They decided to play their new song, Brown Sugar. They continued to play a few more numbers, but when the final note was played, the band skipped throwing rose petals out to the audience, which was their usual sign-off. Even if they had wanted to, it wouldn't have mattered, as one of the angels had earlier in the evening found the baskets of petals sitting behind the speakers and chucked them, baskets and all, out into the audience. The band said a quick goodnight and booked it through the backstage. A hole in the cyclone fence had been cut to get them to the helicopter quickly. Seventeen people climbed into the helicopter bound for the short flight to the Tracy Airport, where they would then transfer to another plane and on to San Francisco. While waiting to board, Jagger, still dazed, asked how anyone could think that the Hell's Angels were good people that they should have around. I'd rather have cops, Jagger said. By the time homicide investigators were dispatched to the crime scene, well, there was no longer a crime scene. The stage, scaffolding, lights, and speakers had all been taken away by the next morning. Anyone save Patty Bredhoff, who had been a witness, were long gone. Only one witness, a young college student named Frank Leonetti, who had helped move Meredith Hunter's body, drove to the police substation in Hayward to give a full statement. When he arrived, his shirt was still covered in the boy's blood. He also said one of the angels had showed him the weapon he'd taken off Murdoch. He didn't know the biker's name, but thought he would recognize him if he saw him. On Sunday, Patty arrived at the police station to give a statement. She described the angel who had first punched her boyfriend and the one with the knife. She told police she thought the bikers had their eye on Murdoch ever since they arrived. She said she saw disapproval in their eyes that a black man was dating a white girl. The Maisels brothers had captured Murdoch's murder on all three of their cameras. The police would have to wait for the film to be developed to receive a copy, but once they did, they could clearly see the Hell's Angel who'd stabbed him, but they did not know his identity, and of course, none of the other angels were talking. When they finally interviewed the bikers who had been present, they all had a similar story. The boy had been acting aggressively towards them all night and had pulled a gun. A rumor circulated that Meredith Hunter had planned to shoot Mick Jagger. Yes, the angels admitted, some of their members had jumped in to try and stop him, but so had several civilians, they claimed. Alan Pissarro, the angel responsible for stabbing Murdoch, had returned to San Jose. The following Tuesday, he was caught in a stolen vehicle along with two other members. He had ditched the knife, but the sheath it was usually holstered in was still on his belt. The trio was arrested for Grand Theft Auto, and Pissarro was immediately sent to jail, as he was on bail at the time for another grand theft charge. While the cops hadn't gotten very far into their investigation of Meredith Hunter's murder, reporters from the fledgling magazine Rolling Stone had been talking to scores of witnesses for a feature article titled Let It Bleed, The Rolling Stone's Disaster at Altamont. Jan Werner, the managing editor of the magazine, gave investigators an advanced copy of the story. Quoted in the article was someone only identified as Paul, who claimed to have seen the whole attack up close. Investigators followed up on this lead and identified the source as Paul Cox. He was the person who had first tried to help Murdoch and then assisted in moving his broken body to the stage. They located another witness in January, a 15-year-old girl who had seen the attack from the first punch thrown by the Hell's Angel when Meredith Hunter fell into the crowd. She also said she could identify the bikers involved. Investigators were finally led to Pissarro through a confidential informant. Pissarro was back in prison, serving a two- to ten-year sentence. When detectives interviewed him, 
He had a large cut on his hand. He, he claimed to have gotten the cut while slicing meat. He denied being the person who'd stabbed Meredith Hunter, but was picked out of a photo lineup by both Paul Cox and Denise Bell, the teenage witness. Ellen Passaro was arrested for the murder of Meredith Hunter. He was moved to the Alameda County Jail to await trial on first-degree murder charges. The prosecutor announced that they would be seeking the death penalty. In December 1970, Ellen Passaro went on trial. The jury was shown the footage of the Maisel's film showing Meredith Hunter with the gun and the man the prosecution said was Alan Passaro stabbing him with the knife. After 17 days of testimony and 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found Passaro not guilty. They believed he was the man that was caught on camera, but they also thought he had acted in self-defense. Passaro wasn't free, though. He still had to complete his sentence for his previous conviction. In 1985, according to police, Ellen Passaro died under suspicious circumstances. He was found drowned in Anderson Lake, a reservoir located south of San Jose. He had $10,000 in his pockets. Police suspected that he'd been murdered by rivals of the Hells Angels. The documentary film about the Rolling Stones' 1969 North America tour, culminating in the Altamont Speedway concert, was released in December of 1970. Titled Gimme Shelter, it opened to considerable controversy with some critics alleging that the filmmakers and the Rolling Stones were making money directly off a young man's murder. However, today it is considered one of the great rock documentaries. Criticism, however, was reserved for the band and the concert promoters for completely ignoring the fact that Meredith Hunter was brutally murdered by people hired to work as ad hoc security guards for the free concert. None of the other Hells Angels members were ever held responsible for participating in Hunter's murder or any of the assaults they committed during the concert at Altamont. Meredith Hunter's family reported that no member of the Rolling Stones nor the concert promoters ever contacted them to offer their condolences or even acknowledge his death. His mother proposed that Altamont Speedway be turned into a memorial park in honor of her son. Nothing ever came of this proposal. Altamont Speedway continued as a raceway until 2008, when it closed permanently. Today, the area is known for the Altamont Pass wind farm. Almost 5,000 wind turbines dot the landscape over the pass along the 580 freeway. The Altamont wind farm produces about 125 megawatts on average and 1.1 terawatt hours yearly. And the wind turbines look pretty cool as you drive over the pass, which I do quite frequently. And from now on, whenever I see them, I will think of Meredith Hunter. Meredith Hunter was buried in an unmarked grave in Vallejo, California. His family had no money for a grave marker. In 2006, a documentary film directed by Sam Green entitled Lot 63, Grave C, named for the location of Hunter's gravesite, was released and screened at several film festivals. Afterwards, donations were sent to his family, who used the money to purchase a headstone marking his grave. It was installed in 2008. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you're interested in learning even more details of this story, I'll direct you to a few resources I used in part in the research for this episode. First is Joel Selvin's excellent book titled Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. The second resource is the original article published in Rolling Stone magazine in 1970 that told the real story of the murder at the Altamont Free Concert. Finally, the documentary film Gimme Shelter, directed by Albert and David Maisel. As of the release of this episode, it was available to watch online at watchdocumentaries.com, and I'm sure you can download it on other streaming services as well. I've included links for all of these resources in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another rock and roll inspired true crime story, and I hope you'll join me then. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.